Welcome to the Gary and Kenny Show. I'm Gary Kroger in Waterloo, Iowa, and I'm joined by Kenny Seisler in Calabasas, California. How are you, Ken? Ah, oh, shit. I knew you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> for I guess for I, I, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. I have no complaints. I'm sure I do have a complaint, but I don't think we have the time for me to list yeah. them all. So, probably well, You know what would be appropriate now? What? H- how are you, Gary? Oh. Kill you? See, these social interaction things. No, you're not I've good never been very good at that. Okay. Ask me how I am. Okay, Gar, yeah. what's going on in your world? Well, I think you know. Uh, we talked about this two weeks ago. It's probably not a good idea to start a show talking about a colonoscopy. Oh, no, but, not again. No, but again, listen. No, I've literally people, had people complain about the colonoscopy thing, but go ahead. People have been asking me since they heard it on the show that I was having, and I did. Ask me how it went. Well, I, I hope it's good news. It was good news. It was very smooth. I mean, just for all who are curious, my colonoscopy was a smashing success. Mm-hmm. The Demerol made me funny, you know, mm-hmm. for about two hours. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I have a perfect clean bill of health. Well, I say this what? as a public service announcement because anyone our age should make sure that they have a colonoscopy. Well, hopefully the next colonoscopy you'll do uh, while uh, we're having the podcast so viewers can actually participate. Right. Yeah, and this episode fine. is, by the way, brought to you by Movie Prep, your <laughs> colonoscopy friend. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's Are move on. Are people listening to this? No. no. <laughs> Are you ready? We have I a am. great guest today, Ken. We have a great mm-hmm. guest. Mm-hmm. We have a great guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a friend of mine, a friend of many people, but I, I am honored to call him my friend. He has an absolutely astonishing resume. The people, the people he's worked with is a veritable who's who, if you will, in comedy. He uh, probably had a life before the early 1970s, but at that time, he was an audio engineer and young guy named Christopher Guest auditioned for him, and they became friends. That led to Bob Tischler, our guest working at the National Lampoon Radio Hour, and he worked with people like, oh, Michael O'Donohue, Tony Hendra, John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Gilda Radner. I mean, it's endless. He actually cast me in Saturday at Saturday Night Live. And so he's responsible. <laughs> he is responsible, and I'm ah, sure we'll so get he's into the that. guy. Okay. But he was the producer and head writer. And uh, I'm sure he'll claim that as one of his most noteworthy associations. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Bob Tischler. Hello, Bob Tischler. How are you, Ken? I'm well. Oh, geez. (laughs) Bob, did you hear about my colonoscopy? Yes. And uh, actually, uh, I had one recently, and I was very tempted to uh, post the picture on Facebook. (laughs) We talked about I encourage you to do that. Yeah, I was going to. They all look like wormholes, don't they? I mean, is there a difference? I'm not sure. Then they showed me my picture of the colonoscopy. How do I know it's just like a stock photo they pulled off of Google and said, "Here's your colonoscopy. Here's your colon." Yeah. yeah. Well, right, just another yeah. thing that we shouldn't <laughs> now, be did, talking did, about. Did, now, Ken, did people really complain about us talking about colonoscopy? Yes, I did have. I did have somebody say I didn't want to listen to 12 minutes of colonoscopy, <laughs> and I think we're just about to break our record. <laughs> all right, enough of that. <laughs> okay. So, Bob. The last time I saw you, I don't know when it was. I mean, we, we were pretty tight for about three years at SNL. I, I left to go out west. I saw you and your ex-wife, you know, in your apartment in New York. That's I believe right. I saw you when I did the David Brenner show, right? Right. That might be the last time I saw you. I think it was. I think it was. It's been a long time. But I have been following you on Facebook, uh, yeah. your sock collection. Thank you. Must be enormous. How many socks do you have now? Um, or pairs. 30, 30 pair of stocks. 
and I'm wearing pizza socks today. <laughs> it's great. This all started with Brad Hall. Brad Hall said, you've got to try my socks. They're Bombas socks. And he sent them to me, and I just made a joke out of getting socks from Brad Hall, and now I get socks every day. And I am wearing Bombas right now, by the way. Are you wearing Bombas? Yes, absolutely. Well, um, Bob, given all of this stuff that you've done in the past, I know about that, but the thing that I also heard is, thank God we have another podcast coming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what American is, another podcast. Yeah, I uh, have been asked to uh, produce and engineer a podcast for American Bystander magazine. Is it a real is, magazine, a print magazine? It's yeah, a print it's magazine, and it's a, uh, uh, you can get it also uh, on PDF. Uh, it's uh, kind of a, not an offshoot, but uh, a lot of the writers from the National Lampoon uh, have gathered to make this magazine, as well as other comedy writers. Uh, oh, really? So, so it's a really for, exciting project. The magazine is great. No, I checked it out. It's very funny. It's very yeah, good. Yeah, for people who don't know, it's a comedy magazine. Right. I mean, it sort of sounds political in a way, American Bystander, but it's a comedy I especially magazine. like memos from cavemen, from the cavemen. I especially like that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, really well since we're, we're talking about that, and we'll, we'll backtrack, but sure. so what will the format be? You have a, a host, a couple well, of we're, hosts? We're, yeah. we're, we're working on the format right now. It's probably going to be a lot like the National Lampoon Radio Hour was, which is uh, highly produced sketches, uh, that basically have you know a lot of sound effects and music and tell stories. Uh, a lot of it we're discussing right now whether it's going to be themed or not. Uh, we're gathering writers right now. Uh, Don Novello has agreed to to work uh -huh. on it. Dave Thomas has agreed to work on oh, it. Wow. Uh, there's a there's a whole bunch of writers who we're now contacting to contribute to this. I'm and curious, will regular you be doing contributors. I'm sorry, would you be doing these sketches like over Zoom? Is that how uh, you plan on doing? Cause well, people what's be in interesting spots. is be when we did the National Lampoon Radio Hour, we had our own studio. Right. We had everybody there uh, as a group basically working, writing it and performing it. We can't do that now because everybody's in different places. So uh, we're kind of uh, going to be recording remotely. Uh, we haven't figured out whether it's... Uh, yet who the actors are going to be. Um, we're going to, a lot of uh, voiceover actors, a lot of uh, actors, uh, probably a lot of improv improvisational actors. Gary will probably be calling you to do a love little it. bit. I'd love it. Uh, and there'll be a lot of people who are just generating their own material, like Donavella will probably just give yeah. him a microphone send it to us and then i will be where i used to work out of a studio i can now work out of my computer and do all the post-production right out of my house right. a side right. note about don novella because every time his name comes and i saw him a couple of years ago 35 years ago he came to visit snl or 37 whatever it was right and he said gary all, all i ever and i'm not doing a good don invitation <laughs> he said which by the way he doesn't have an italian accent no <laughs> no it's true is he doesn't he said all i want to do is make one hundred thousand dollars a year i don't need to make more i can't make less so long as i know i can make one hundred thousand dollars i wonder year. what the price is now given inflation but well, but he was figuring inflation. He says, so oh. long as I know I can make $100,000 a year, I'm fine. I've really made that the benchmark of my life <laughs> since. And that's thanks to that. Hey, I want to go back then, since we're talking about National Lampoon Radio Hour. Sure. How did that start, Bob? Because, you know, I knew you as the Senate Live producer. Right. And then I got to know, holy shit, this guy 
worked with everybody, National Lampoon, people like Bill Murray would drop by and say, oh, he's my very good friend. And I learned more and more about you. So here you are, this relatively young kid doing commercials for movies, right? Radio spots? Right, exactly. Chris Guest comes in to audition? He came in to do a commercial for Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Uh, it was a, a movie that uh, it was, a, it was a Joe Cocker movie. Yeah, I know. And uh, he came in and he did a character that, that was really funny and it came up with a character and I really liked it. We became friends. He started coming around to the studio and doing improvisation and I would put sound effects, et cetera, to it. And we just did it for fun. Where was the uh, studio? This was in New York City. Hmm. And uh, what happened was uh, he, National Lampoon Magazine, uh, decided to do a record album called uh, Radio Dinner. Right. Uh, he gave me a call. I uh, did the sound production on it. Uh, and I, that's where I met Michael O'Donoghue. Uh, Michael O'Donoghue, a few, uh, I guess about a year later, called me up and said that National Lampoon uh, was going to start a radio show called the National Lampoon Radio Hour, and uh, would I come along and produce it? So I left my situation. We built a studio at the National Lampoon on the 17th floor. Uh, we started putting it together, and at the same time, uh, Lemmings was going on, the National right. Lampoon show. Uh, John Belushi was in it. Chris was in it. Uh, Chevy. A lot of Chevy Chase was in it. Um, and so they became kind of attached to National Lampoon. When that was over, uh, there was a National Lampoon touring show that uh, Belushi and uh, Gilda and Harold Ramis and uh, Bill Murray, Brian Doyle Murray, all those people were part of, and they also became part of the radio show. Uh, and basically, for me, it was the most fun time because nobody cared about money, no, there were no censors. The show was so hard to produce that there was no time for anybody to listen to it before it went out on the air. And so now it's total would, freedom. We would call that now, a, it's kind of gone full circle. Now we would call that a podcast. Right. But, you know. <laughs> but did, did you find happy accidents that way? Was that almost a better way to produce and not to overthink? You just do it? Absolutely. And it also, uh, it was an hour show called the National Point Radio Hour. After a few episodes, it became impossible to, to produce an hour episode a week. So uh, we cut it to a half an hour, but we told the audience that the radio stations had been cutting us off. So the <laughs> right. show would just end abruptly after half an hour, and then we complained about it the following week, and all the radio stations got swamped with phone calls complaining. And it was the best hoax we had pulled off. It was great. Now, I want to go 10 years. We'll get back to this spot. But 10 sure. years before that, are you this kid with the, that built a realistic Radio Shack radio? I mean, what got you into the audio world? Uh, an accident. Uh, this is my, it's a little embarrassing, but uh, I was a heavy pot smoker. Uh, I had a, uh, the worst job you could possibly, well, it was the worst job I've ever had, which was, I was living in New York City. I was an elevator starter wearing a white uniform with a white cap. A starter? What, what, what does that do? You basically stood by the elevators and greeted people as they came in. Oh, and I remember those. Yeah. Why and would you say it, that was the worst job? That's a great job. <laughs> <laughs> basically, uh, there's nowhere to go. The, but the other part of the job right. was putting out mats when it snowed, stuff like that. And I was yeah. miserable. <laughs> 
Yeah. All right. Uh, so I uh, was in New York City, and I was at a friend of mine's apartment, and he had a, uh, a friend, Paul Hirsch, who uh, was a film editor, eventually became uh, the film editor for uh, Star Wars um, and a whole bunch of other uh, movies that he won Academy Awards for. Um, anyway, uh, I just said, I'm miserable with this job. Do you know anything? Is there so anything? You started available? to smoke pot. And anyway, I wanted a job where I could smoke pot. Right. <laughs> so he said, there ha happens to be an apprentice job uh, open at the uh, editing place where he worked. And so I grabbed it. Uh, I didn't even know what a sound effect, what sound effects were at the time. Uh, but I started, uh, they, it was the kind of place where they would just, if you were willing to learn, they would teach you everything about sound. And... I started walking around New York City, and when I heard traffic, it was just like a sound effect to me. When I heard any sound, <laughs> right. it just be, that's the way I was thinking. I would eat, sleep, and drink sound. Sound. Now, it's you good work. that you found, you found your calling that way. I mean, I obviously, you had a natural talent for, as far as audio is concerned. You, you have an ear for it. Yeah. I just had a natural talent for it. Yeah. And also, I was, I was heavily into into comedy when I was a kid. I was, you know, listening to albums like Bob like, Newhart's Button Down Mind. And uh, probably I remember, I remember uh, memorizing the 2,000-year-old man album oh, yeah. we all, yeah, with exactly. a friend of mine. How much did Pot play into uh, when you guys were recording the National Lampoon um, uh, Hour? Heavily. <laughs> everybody was stoned, right? <laughs> yes, everybody yeah. was well, now, Bob, you were you had a signature back then. Obviously, you're carving out a niche as a great sound guy with an expertise in comedy. But for those who don't know, you were famous. He was for red hair. <laughs> oh, you had the wildest red mane. Now, hmm. I've only known you as like this. Basically, you look exactly like you did 35 years ago. <laughs> but sure. you had. When did the red mane go? Uh. It went uh, as soon as I started realizing that I was looking like Bozo the Clown because I was bald on top and I had this long red hair. It was cool, though. Yeah, it was, it was cool. But I actually passed a homeless guy in the street who called me Bozo. <laughs> and, and gave you money. <laughs> well, yeah. I like the guys so who got older and accepted the fact that the long hair is starting to look silly. There are some rock stars that at some point you go, you know what? It's just not good. Like Roger Daltrey, he got his hair cut. He uh -huh. looks great now. But then there's other guys who are just old, and right. they can't carry the long hair. Well, it's when they dye it. It's when they dye oh, it. Oh, that's it's true. It's okay long, but let it go gray, you know, like this. Yeah. They, they, they dye it, and then it looks like Gene Simmons. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, Bob, you, you and O'Donohue became – was O'Donohue as wild as we knew him to become? He was always wild. I mean, he yeah. was, was he funny? He was incredibly funny. Well, the reason I asked that because he was, when I, I don't, I mean, I just as an outsider, he was very dark yeah. and kind of scary. Yes, he was. <laughs> he was not like in the traditional sense of saying, ha ha, he's doing jokes, funny guy. So I didn't know how, I mean, he, he, how he just, in a room, he would just make people laugh because on camera, when he would do his bits, I was always like, this guy is strange. <laughs> He was as strange or stranger off camera. I mean, it, it was not an act. Um, I, I don't want to go into a lot of the things. I That's know okay. he, he's dead now, but uh, 
Well, he was really strange. He he brought you to SNL, correct? Uh, he did. Right. He uh, what what happened was uh, I had this recording career. You know, I did the Blues Brothers albums. Uh, I was really happy doing all that, but. Uh, he said, you know, uh, Lauren Michaels is leaving Saturday Night Live. Dick Ebersole is taking over. Uh, would you like to come and run the writing staff? Uh, I didn't even, I had written before, but I didn't even call myself a writer. I was just working with, uh, with funny people and right. we were writing together, but I was never even called myself a writer. But I said, okay, I'll try it out. So I did, and I got hooked on writing. I just did. Uh, and it just changed my whole life. I left the record business and well, was now in when, the television business. Well, if, you know, you, you came to see me and Brad Hall and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, uh, Paul Barras. Well, we um, actually came to see you, by the way. You came to see me? We came to see you. We didn't even know about the other ones. We just knew that you were in a uh, group called The Practical Theater. And we you might solve a, a, a mystery then. Because I'm doing this show in Chicago with Brad and Julia and Paul. And um, I was asked to send a tape to Saturday Night Live from my agent. And I didn't know what or for what reason. I went into a room. They put a camera on me. I'm doing yesterday and today. I Ed Sullivan, the Beatles, and all of these things. And, and, and may God bless anything that I could <laughs> think of. And send it off. And the tree from A Wizard of Oz. I'd like it if somebody picked your apples or something like that. Thinking, oh, okay, that was bizarre. Never th thought twice about it. And then we hear that you and Dick are in the audience and you ask to see all of us like the next day or something, to which you said, can you guys be in New York in two weeks? <laughs> and of course, Boy, Julia and I were thrilled. Right. We just, we didn't know about the others. We saw the show and we said, you know, all these people have talent. Why don't we just bring them on? So we did. So when I got And the there, mystery, Gary, is why? Well, I had never known for sure if they saw my tape. I had just heard oh, that they, you know, I, you. I just wasn't really sure about all that. But now the, the experience of SNL, that's, that's rich with stories. You know, it, it was difficult for me because I'm literally this neophyte and I don't have a clue. I miss my mommy. You know, I, I, I was sort of lost in all of that. But Bob, you, you became a very good friend. And you were called the producer of the show. I didn't right. call you head writer. You were producer. Dick was executive. You were producer. Right. That's what my title became, actually. Right. And you know what? What was that experience from your perspective like? And and we'll start with me and Julia and Brad coming on board. And of course, Eddie Murphy's becoming a superstar. How did you manage all of that? Well, it was kind of you kind of had to improvise, obviously. Uh, we didn't, uh, the hard thing was when we took over the show, before I even got there, uh, Dick Ebersol fired the, basically the whole cast. Uh, yeah. And uh, my job, my first job was to fire the writers, which was one of the most unpleasant things. I had to call each writer, and I, I didn't even know the writers, but the decision had been made actually outside of me. So then we went on. Oh. Uh, we, what, we went, what's that like? Because <laughs> oh, that reminds me sure of the guy that tells the guy on the football team, you, we're not picking up your contract. You've been cut. Good luck. Yeah. Pick, clean out your locker. Uh, it was, so it was did really any of those people that you fired, both from the, the cast and from the writing staff, have gone on to 
bigger and better things? Um, not that I can think of. Oh, okay. Well, well I mean, in the cast, uh, yeah, Jelly, Danny Dillon actually went on to do uh, some things. She was in the original cast. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried was in the original oh, cast. Oh, yeah, no, Gilbert, he's, yeah. He's yeah. obviously yeah. done well. Yeah, except for the Affleck thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did a small movie with Charlie Rocket. But okay. may he rest in peace as oh, well. Right. You know? He was a good guy. He was a great guy. Yeah, he was well, that had guy. to be very difficult. But from from my perspective, what what did you have an operating formula? Was there what 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 tickled your fancy? What did you not like? I, I've always wanted to know your experience. Well, I, I always want to know if he was still smoking pot. I was still smoking pot. Okay. I'm still smoking pot. <laughs> okay, I've never stopped. Um, my skill, really, uh, my first skill in writing was as an editor. Uh, I was, uh, I, I'm really good at rewriting. Uh, so that was what I did, basically. Uh, well, the public doesn't really know this, how, the, how Saturday Night Live works, but basically on Monday you meet with the host. Uh, you uh, talk about what the host might want to do, but Monday night we start writing. Uh, Tuesday, uh, I believe it was Tuesday, we'd have a read-through. No, that no, was Wednesday. Wednesday, we'd have a read-through. Tuesday's when all the work right. really got done late into the night with no-dos right. and whatever. So uh, on Wednesday, we'd have a read-through. There'd be about 35 sketches brought to read-through. Uh, the, uh, the people who were in charge, uh, Ebersol, myself, uh, sometimes uh, Blasting and Sheffield, yeah. Uh, and Davey Wilson would meet and we'd select what uh, would go on the show. It had to do with what uh, we thought worked in read-through and what fit together. Um, and then we'd start, the sets would start being built and we'd start rewriting. And so there was intense uh, rewriting to get these sketches so they'd be in place uh, to bring to the floor. The first sketches would be the easier sketches uh, to mount would be brought on to the floor on Thursday to start rehearsing. Uh, on Friday, the more, diff more sets would be built and we'd start rehearsing uh, on Friday. But there's a lot of rewriting that went on between there. So well, Monday was the you first time that the staff would meet the host? Monday. That would be Monday. But they knew in advance. Right. They had to know a little bit in advance how who the host was going to be, not so much. Yeah, we'd know who the host was going to be, but yeah. we, we really yeah, but, wouldn't yeah. meet with the host at all until Monday and find out. That's where we'd really find out. So do you have memories? I'm going to ask the question. Of course, you can defer if you want to. Who was the worst host that came on that you said, oh, my God, this is a disaster? And you knew it on Monday. I, I can give you, you a it few. on Monday. I can oh, give okay. you a few. Okay. Uh, and actually, have a, in front of me, I have a list of hosts. I, I, I thought this would be coming. <laughs> oh, this is your list? Worst and best. That's so right. I'm looking at the host right now. Mm -hmm. I can give you mine. Okay. You want let's mine? See let's see if it's the same one. Yeah. I would okay. say Robert Blake was not a... Was you know what? A, that is exactly... And I'm looking at that name right now. Wow. And I'll tell you what. I'll tell you one thing. Well, he's dead, so... Yeah. I think he's dead. But he? uh, hey, he's what I people. But did he, is he dead? I'm, I'm not I sure. don't know. But one of the great defenses of all time was I didn't kill that person because I had to go back to the car to get my gun. Get my gun. <laughs> I saw him. This is what I saw him do. He took a script that uh, one of the writers had written. He brought it to the writer and he said, "You know what I'm going to do with this? I'm going to use it as toilet paper." Mm. I I'm the writer. Is that true? 
It was my script. Really? I, I, I wrote it with, with, with Paul and, and, and Brad, but it was some saying about him being area, having this cockatoo that was really erudite and quoted uh -huh. Shakespeare. I don't remember the premise, really, but he wiped his ass with it. Now, oh it didn't God. offend me. I figured, well, I'm in the big leagues now. This is what <laughs> happens when they don't like your script. But it didn't endear me to him either. Mm. Mm. But he was he wasn't a, I didn't think he was great in the show. Well, I would say he wasn't great. I, I would say it's karma where he ended yeah. up now, Gary. If he only but liked yeah. sketch, things would have been different today. Usually the uh, people who are on to have fun to do it uh, because they've always wanted to do it with the yeah. best host. Sure. Uh, oh yeah. Like who else is on your list? Uh, well, I want to give you one of the, my favorite hosts. Yes. Was uh, Jeff Bridges. Oh, because the, the reason he wanted to do the show was because he wanted to do the show. Do the show. It right. was not to promote anything. Uh, he was on with his brother. I yeah. thought he was just terrific to be with. They were great. Yeah. And the after party, they brought the sun up with me. And Christine Ebersol had come by to visit from the previous cast. And we sat in a bar till 6.30 in the morning. That's me great. and Jeff Bridges. That's, I don't have much of a story to tell outside a, no, of that. That's a great memory. He, he was going, no, you know, he would just soon hang out with me as a million other things Jeff Bridges could do in New York. So, yeah, he was great. Uh, and that year, there were, that year, there were actually a lot of hosts that I really like. Ron Howard was a host that year. Howard, uh -huh. Howard Hessman. Uh, Howard Hessman. Uh, Michael Keaton. Mm, great guy. Um, and recently, I did a, uh, an interview for a guy who's writing a book about Sid Caesar. Yeah. Uh, and that was a really interesting host because uh, there was a lot of reverence towards Sid Caesar because of yeah. uh, his uh, history in live television. But he also had a history of being angry and yeah. trying to deal with that. Yes. Uh, he kept reminding us. He kept reminding us that he created the format that we're now doing. That's right. We never forgot that. That's right. But he did. Uh, there was one incident uh, where uh, writers uh, Barry Blaustein, David Sheffield, and myself had written a piece, uh, and he insisted on doing a rehearsal for the piece. Uh, the same night that we wrote it. So we didn't, we didn't have any sets or anything like that. And we kind of roped off an area and did it. And there was one point where he started screaming, no, 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 no. Yeah. And then <laughs> he's backed off in the middle of it. And went, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, I'm, I'm fine. But it was, and I had intended not to talk about this incident at all to the guy who wrote the book, but I found out that uh, one of the other guys had already told him the incident oh yeah yeah, yeah. well he, he became himself and then suddenly heard his therapist again no no that's the bad exactly. shit. that's the bad yeah. shit. back off back off i think i was in that sketch because i kind of remember <laughs> when but, you know i wasn't crazy no jerry lewis was yes, jerry lewis well right. jerry lewis was jerry lewis for, and, and we were all in awe and of course joe and eddie were and, and it, there was that fantastic element but it it didn't feel comfortable to me he was Jerry Lewis, and he didn't seem to fit. It, from my view, you might have had a very different perspective. Uh, I had always kind of studied Jerry Lewis as a show business phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, there were a whole bunch of us who used to watch the uh, Jerry Lewis telethon. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, because he would always blow up at one point during the telethon or he would do something really strange. Yeah, uh, right. And right. he didn't disappoint when he came to Saturday Night Live. Yeah, he, he started telling, uh, you know, because he considered himself a director, he started talking, trying to 
convince the director to use different lenses on his on the cameras. Yeah. Uh, he ended up having a good time on the show, but it was a very, it was a really stressful week. And I overheard him say that he never wears the same pair of socks twice. That's right. And that which my whole you sock, sock thing, Brad, <laughs> came up from Jerry Lewis having said that he always puts on a fresh pair of socks every day. Hmm. There. There you go. that? <laughs> um, I do the same thing with underwear, by the way. You know, yeah. I actually, it's always fresh. well, never mind. Ken, Ken, Ken's fans don't like it when we go into the, <laughs> the, the nether region. I think they're my enemies. Uh, that year also, Stevie Wonder was a host, which yes. uh, that, that was amazing. That was amazing. Because I don't know if you were on the, uh, in Studio 8H at the time, it was a Thursday rehearsal day where they uh, usually do music rehearsal. He was the musical guest as well. And he said, "Turn on a re the exactly." Yes, yep. he said, "Turn on the turn on the re the uh, re please record this." He was sitting at a, right. at a uh, piano, and he wrote a song right in front of us. Yeah, and I remember it, it just modulated and modulated and modulated, and then went back to the original key. He is a he is a, a true genius. genius. I mean, I just I was just floored. Yeah, yeah, and, and sketches and right. Edge yeah, he did sketches. Yeah, well, but he did have sketches. And the yeah. cue cards are not uh, were of no value to him. <laughs> no. no. So, so he had a have... so he like unlike everybody else, he had literally had to learn the lines. You know what he had? He had an earpiece. Uh, and he had a and, friend and of his, his in the his no, it was his the, brother, wasn't it? Oh, it was his brother, okay. And the, I think he was in the dressing room basically reading Oh, the, what would have been on cue cards to him or helping him along. Interesting, interesting. And and he and Joe Pispo did this really funny probably couldn't do it today but he, they're playing tennis and and, and uh, right. Stevie Wonder is taking pictures so it's for Canon cameras and of right. course the pictures are simply right. everywhere yeah and it, Stevie thought it was funny that's we right. thought it was funny but it, it might not be uh, correct anymore. that's great that's great uh, Bob do you, do you watch the show now uh I very rarely watch the show now uh my favorite thing is not actually to watch sketches <laughs> uh <laughs> I actually watch more dramas and uh, some of the weirder shows, but I, I, I don't watch that much comedy. But let, let's, let's talk about, you know, the show came to an end. Everybody <laughs> left. I, I was, sorry if I'm talking about me, but I don't get to talk to you that much, Dr. Judith Tischler. Um, it will explain your name. There. <laughs> but it's his wife. Um, I had finally figured things out a little bit. You know, I look at stuff that I did, and some of it I'm very proud of. People still talk about Needleman. They, you know, Walter Mondale or whatever. One of my favorite Needleman, of, by the way. I, I did a <laughs> lot of things that I look at and I cringe because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how. I didn't have. It just didn't fit right. You know, I overplayed it or whatever. But by that season, I'd gotten my sea legs and I knew what I was doing. And then suddenly everybody's gone, <laughs> and so I had no choice but to load up the truck and move to Beverly. But so what was that like for you then? You went on to do David Brenner. What's, what's the after SNL life? What's your next step? Well, yeah, I went on to, to produce. I was hired by Motown to produce uh, a David Brenner talk show called Nightlife. Um, Billy Preston was the uh, musical uh, leader. Yeah. Uh, it, was, uh, it was fun to do because it was a daily show. It was something I hadn't done before. You basically had to read the newspaper, come up with jokes. Yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was a lot of I different kind of pressure really than Saturday Night Live. Uh, yeah. Also, I had uh, hired Davey Wilson away from Saturday Night Live right. to be the director. Uh, 
And uh, he was perfect because it was a lot easier for him to do it in Saturday Night Live, but we had a rapport already, so that was really good. Well, I really enjoyed the show. I'm not sure how long it lasted or why it went away, but I thought it was, he was a very good host. a year, basically. He was a very uh, good host. He was a good host. He did not get along with the powers that be Mm, at all. He hated people. He hated the suits. He really considered himself a guy from a tough neighborhood, yeah. and didn't like uh, the suits and gotten, almost got into physical fights with them at one point. We lost him way too soon. Yeah. Yeah, or oh, way too soon. I, I've always but he was a really nice suits. guy. Really <laughs> I always figured the suits gave me the job, so <laughs> I, I, you know. I, I uh, and by the, the way, uh, about your stint on Saturday Night Live, I have to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a big basketball fan, and I always considered you uh, sixth man of the year, the guy who would come <laughs> off the bench Basically, the uh, no, I never sensed a big ego thing going on with you. No, I didn't. And you basically uh, would support the show. It was not about you as much, at least it just seemed that way, no. as just doing the right thing for the show. So it was really a well, pleasure I, to work I appreciate with you. that. And, and, and you were really you, talented. Well, well, you just absolutely made my day. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob, I would have done the show for 10 more years with you. I, I you know, I, I, I loved it. Um, but I really appreciate that. I, I, I have prided myself on being Iowa nice, I guess. And, you know, I got a good life, you know, but I miss, I miss the old days. I miss what you're doing. I miss, you know, Kenny's still in the business. I miss, I miss the business. Yeah, we all miss it. I, I have to say this about you also. You know, the worst thing about the job I had on Saturday Night Live, and I, I really loved working there, But the hardest thing that I had to do was between dress rehearsal and the air show. (laughs) Cut. There were, they had to be because we brought more sketches to the floor than could fit into the show to give us flexibility. There had to be two or three sketches that were cut. Uh, And we also cut sketches because we had to move. We changed the order of things. We had to move them around. And my job was between dress rehearsal and air, to meet with the cast and tell them who was cut out of the show. (laughs) And sometimes somebody would be cut out of the show entirely, Uh, which uh, I'm not going to say who it was, but there were a few scenes where people would just burst into tears and lock themselves in the dressing room. (laughs) And you (laughs) never did that. I never did. I never, (laughs) well, you know, you're disappointed in a way that, you know, but yeah, you know. I didn't cry. <laughs> well, now, so Bob, so after so you're doing that, well, you stay in touch with Blaustein and Sheffield, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, you're, you're still tight, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I, I'm Facebook friends with them. I saw Barry when I was running for office. Yeah. He came to my fundraiser in, in Los Angeles. We're, you know, we're, we're all still good friends. Right, right. Um, we are. you get asked about most, Bob? When you tell people your background, that you worked on SNL and you did all these different things, what celebrity or what person does everybody go, what, what was he like or she like? Uh, there's kind of two. It's Bill Murray, because Bill Murray, right. we were really, really close friends, yeah. and John Belushi. Right, right, um, right. You know, John Belushi, there's a lot of things to be said about him, but he was a great friend to me. That's great. He, you know, I would... when. First of all, just a little story about John. When we were working on the radio hour and he was kind of wanting to learn about the blues for some reason. Anyway, he would come over to my apartment and I had my, uh, at that time we were, we, we had LPs. 
And I had a big record collection. It was all in alphabetical order. He would come to my house and start whipping out records, tearing out all the blues records, throwing them around my living room. He was John Belushi. Mm. So he would leave, and there would be this gigantic mess of just records out of their jackets all over the the floor. And uh, one of the records that he was really interested in, I was a big Taj Mahal fan, Mm. and uh, he really liked, and I really liked, uh, a song called She Caught the Katie, which ended up being the opening of the Blues Brothers movie. Wow! Well, so was this the beginning of his taste for the blues? I mean, he was just... He was into it, but he didn't know that much about it. And he, once he started really getting into it, he just listened to it more and more. So that led to the Blues Brothers being created, which led to the movie, which led to the album. So what was that experience? You produced the music. You produced the albums. Right. Uh, It was, uh, first of all, it was a big surprise because... uh, what we did was uh, the Blues Brothers were to open for Steve Martin at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles, nine nights. And what happened was Steve Martin was great, but people came to see Belushi and the Blues Brothers. who had already been on Saturday Night Live. That's where they, they started. Uh, an amazing band was formed. It was Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper and Paul Schaefer and yeah. Steve Jordan just great musicians. Um, and what happened was we recorded nine nights. Uh, basically, I just, my, the, the recordings came out really well. The band was great. And my, the biggest job that I had was editing the nine nights together, different parts of different songs. And we just, you know, it was done for fun, basically. Yeah. Nobody thought it was going to sell a lot. All of a sudden, we had the number one album in the country. Yeah, it was very good. It was crazy, yeah. And so all of a sudden, it was, you know, I had a number one record just because of my association with Belushi. I never would have done, gotten to do that if I didn't have, a, you know, original relationship with Belushi oh, yeah, and comedy. Right. So I just was really, really lucky. And uh, do you What about Bill, Mar- Bill Murray? I was just going to ask the same thing. Uh, you still stay in touch with Bill? Uh, I haven't talked to him in a couple of years. Uh, I've kind of lost communication with him. I hope to uh, find him again. I think uh, it's amazing but, how he's, his career just, how versatile he was. Well, he, he could was, go from uh, comedy to drama and do that. It's just remarkable. Yeah, no, he, he is amazing. He used to uh, walk around. This is, again, when we were doing a radio hour. He would walk around New York City. We would walk around at night. And he would walk around as different characters that he came up with. Mm. You know the character that uh, is in Caddyshack that he plays? Yeah, yeah. That was one of the characters. He'd walk around New York City and be that character way before Caddyshack. Really? Yeah. So uh, one of the funniest, one of the naturally funniest people in the world, but he also has a, a, a real intelligent mind that yeah. can do drama. He's not... Uh, I know at first when he he, he stepped out of comedy to do The Razor's Edge, which I think he produced, and it didn't get, wasn't well received. I always heard, and you're you're a lot closer to him, of course, that he was devastated by that. Well, let me tell you a story about Razor's Edge. (laughs) I had been working on Saturday Night Live, and I'd been up for a couple of nights, because we did a lot of all-nighters. 
Anyway, he gave me a call. He said, can you come down to a, a screening where you're going to have of the razor's edge? And so it was probably maybe 30 people in the, in the screening room. I sat down next to him in the front row and fell asleep during the movie. <laughs> <laughs> he saw you? He's, I was right next to him. I was snoring. <laughs> How'd that play? It went. He forgave me. It was okay. Did you see the latest, going back to the blue she was saying, did you see the latest uh, documentary on John? Yeah, I'm in it, actually. Oh, okay. So you, you must have, do you approve of yourself? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, right. you pop up. You know, you were in Dennis Perrin's book on Michael O'Donohue. You know, <laughs> people, people seek Bob out for the stories of these uh, these particular people. So, so post you kept busy, but you know, I lost, we lost track of each other mm -hmm. for a long, long time until maybe Facebook. Fill, fill in some of those years well, after. Okay, well, what happened was after I uh, finished doing the uh, David Brenner show, uh, I was kind of looking. The only other shows really that you could do out in Europe was the David Letterman show. Right. There wasn't much that you could do out in Europe. So uh, what happened was there was a writer's strike in 1988, and I decided, okay, now's a good, I can't work anyway, and now's a good time to move out to the West Coast. And uh, I pitched Eddie Murphy on a show called What's Alan Watching, right. which uh, I ended up writing with uh, Blaustein and Sheffield. Uh, so that's what I, that was the next thing that I did. It got amazing reviews. It, I know. It, it really did. But Paramount hated it. Paramount hated everybody. Like this is a half hour it. sitcom or? It was, an, it was an hour show. It was oh. about a kid who fantasized through his TV set. Okay, cool. Uh, so we would do uh, kind of sketch material on a TV set. Uh, like one thing we did was we went, uh, I'll just give you an example. We went to the uh, Jeopardy set. Uh, I actually uh, got them to cooperate with us. And so we used Alex Trebek and filmed on the set. And uh, the show that Alan watched on the TV set was Jeopardy, but the category was Alan's life. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, <laughs> I want to touch back to the podcast. Do you have any air dates, specifics, anything? that? No, we we're know? really just getting it together right now. Uh, yeah. What I've done is I've gone through all the magazines uh, that they've published so far, uh, pulled out pieces that I think will work on the show. Uh, we're actually talking to uh, all the writers that were contributing to the uh, magazine that are contributing to the magazine about working on the show. We're uh, figuring out format and we're raising money to uh, seed money to do the show. Well, keep us posted so, so we can American bystander yeah. on the air. Do we have a title? Well, it's going to be the American by bystander podcast. Uh, if anybody wants to see what the magazine is like, if you go to, uh, AmericanBystander.org. There are sample issues of the magazine that you can download, a couple of PDF issues. Yeah. Uh, that's also where you can order the magazine. But it's, it's a really a beautiful magazine. And it's really, yeah. the artwork is incredible. And it's re really funny. So I was really, and I didn't even know about the magazine. I found out Brian McConaughey, who basically was the head writer on the magazine and was one of the Lampoon writers. Uh, contacted me because we worked together on the, on the radio hour and thought it would be something I'd want to do. Well, when you launch, our numbers will have gone up exponentially and you'll want to launch it on this podcast. So that means we'll have 24 
viewers. Oh, stop it, Ken. We have more than that. <laughs> we have 5,000 subscribers on the uh, DBNA, which we could talk about. Okay. We're growing, Ken. We're yes. growing. Okay. All right, Ken. Yes. There's always something odd that you surprise me. I don't know about this, always, but... Well, there's uh, always. One of the things odd. that we have done, uh, whether or not we get anything good out of it, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's for the public good, but just uh, uh, talk about things uh, or subject matters that reveal certain things about each one of us. And I was No, you thinking, mainly. Me, yeah, no, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. Anyhow, the idea of this one is I have, I'm a, I have subject matters that uh, all of which I, and I'll tell you right off the bat, all of which I despise. <laughs> I have problems with all these things. I'll list them for you, but I thought a fun way to do it was that uh, if, if this was on television, we would probably get, or if we were on a podcast, I'd probably design a wheel and put all the subject matters on a wheel and then okay. spin the wheel and then whatever subject matter it landed on. So some of the subject okay. matters would be, do you share your meal with, at, at a restaurant? Would you like it with your spouse or whatever? Will you share a meal? What do you think of bees? Sing along. Bees? Bees, like B-E-E. -E. Uh, what do you think of being sung happy birthday to? Fishing. People who whistle. Those kind of subject matters, okay? So uh, since we don't have a wheel, I'm going to ask Gary given as many talents to give us at least the sound effect of a spinning wheel. This is why I'm the sixth man. I'm the guy off the bench. So it sounds so, something like... There you go. We got to get a real wheel. All right. It seemed to have landed on sing-alongs. Sing-alongs? Like I hate sing -alongs. You're at a party and people said, let's all sing. Everybody sing. Or you go to a concert and the guy says, everybody sing along. I hate that. Bob, how about you? I will not sing along. I will very rarely clap along. Mm. Uh, I just don't like to do it. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. I hate that. I love sing-alongs. I love sing-alongs. I lead sing-alongs. I encourage people to sing with me. I love it. If I'm up there, it, it's, I love sing-alongs. And I know every Beatles song that's ever written, and everybody, you could be in Scandinavia, and everybody can sing phonetically, and I will lead sing-alongs. I love sing-alongs. Okay, so we've any time I've, we've, the only time I've really... Love sing-alongs is uh, we took a trip. My wife and I took a trip to Ireland. Hmm. And before we, about a month before we left, I started downloading every Irish pub song that I could hmm. find and memorize them, actually. And was able to sing along at the Irish pubs, went to an Irish pub every night. And that well, when you're fun. drunk, I agree. <laughs> there are exceptions to the rule. I did the same thing when I went to Ireland many years ago. And when you can do that, you never have to buy a pint. Nope. Okay. The American could sing all the Irish folk songs, and I was a god. Gary, will you spin, spin the wheel for us, please? Brrr. Let's see where we land. Oh. Sharing your meal at the restaurant. Your wife says, I don't know, I don't know if you're married, but whatever you're, whoever I'm you're married, with, and they say, hey, do you want to share the, 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 the fish? Do you want to share the salad? Will you share? I'll go first. No. And I make it very clear. I'm getting this meal because I want to eat this food. I'm not getting this because you might want to eat this food. I'll get you whatever you want. If you want the same meal, I'll get that. It's like popcorn. 
Don't eat my popcorn. I'll get you your own. All right, Gary, don't get too mad here. Don't get too right, excited. I, get I can yeah, see you very excited. It's an upsetting issue. I, apparently. Okay. And you, Bob? Well, I really have the same philosophy that Gary has, except that uh, mine has been broken, but my wife insists on sharing. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've learned to go with that. Uh, uh, luckily, she eats fish. I live in Bodega Bay right on the coast. Big yeah. one, it's a fishing Birds village. And fish. I don't eat yeah. any fish at all. Uh, so that solves that. We okay. don't have to share All right. So we have, one, we have one broken man, one angry guy, and I won't share either, by the way. So, and I'm just, you can just put me down as selfish. Um, all right. So, all right. It appears we have landed on whistling. Don't whistle. I used this is to be my thing whistle. about whistle. I'll go first on this thing. I don't understand people who whistle in a gym or when you go to the bathroom. And I really am annoyed when a guy is whistling while I'm at the urinal. I don't even know. I can't even recognize. Is that a song that they're whistling? <laughs> it's not a song. It's like this mono monotone, just kind of whistle thing. Drives me nuts. I don't understand the point. And that song, whistle while you work. Don't whistle while you work. Or the happy whistler. All right, Bob? Whistling? Uh, I'm not a big fan of whistlers, uh, especially I've experienced that thing in the bathroom also. Yeah. It's actually worse when you're in a stall and somebody's in the next stall whistling. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, People out there, stop, stop whistling. Go ahead, Gary. I'm the whistler. I love whistling. Oh, I don't whistle do. as well as my lips get older. I used to be an excellent whistler. Uh, <laughs> I love whistling because you to it's, whistle. it's like having a musical instrument without having to know how to play anything. Well, do it in the private. Because you can play any home. note. And you don't have to carry anything. There's no fingering. You just whistle a song with your lips. And I, I you know, as song. long as you do it in the privacy of your own home, I'm fine with that. I can't wait till I'm in a urinal next to you. I cannot wait. I will whistle the happy whistler while I look at your whistler. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know that uh, I heard this may be a myth, but I heard that uh, your whistling range is the same as your vocal range. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's an octave or two higher. And by the way, even besides the whistling, what about the guy that sings in the gym, in the locker room, or in the bathroom? I hate that. Kill him. I don't want to be serenaded. Uh, I, All right, let's move on. Okay. Can we spin the wheel? Okay. Now, this one I hadn't mentioned, but because you're in Bodega Bay, Bob, which you mentioned is where they filmed the movie The Birds. Right. Uh, this is my question. There are trillions and trillions of birds in the world, on the planet. Where are all the dead birds? You would think that they were flying all over. One bird would have a heart attack. Or would you say, oh, I'm too tired. I can't fly anymore. And they would just drop dead. South again this year. Right. Well, you follow what I'm saying? Where are the dead birds? My guess is they decompose quickly because they, they birds are don't they dropping birds. from the sky. I mean, you think they're on it. They're on a telephone wire somewhere. And yeah. one would go, you know what? I'm, I'm getting a little dizzy. And they would just drop and boom. I never see that. You ever see a bird drop off of anything and just die? No, no. People would do that. Well, this yeah. might be an opportunity for people to write to us if they have the answer. It, it's curious. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have the expertise here to understand the uh, demise of birds. Okay. Well, a lot of them get eaten. A lot of them get yeah. eaten. I was yeah. thinking the same thing. Bigger birds eat smaller birds. Right. Hmm. 
Well, they yeah. keep it clean. You got to answer them. You know that that, that is yeah. nice. That I've certainly clean. run across dead birds in the yard and such, and then squirrels eat them. Do you guys want to do one more? You just one, one more. No, me? I want to do one more. All right, go ahead, spin the wheel. All right, and we've landed on fishing. Fishing. I don't understand people who just go stand on a bridge and throw the fishing rod over there, and they sit there for hours and. Well, it's nothing happening. You're just standing there holding a pole. Bob, you don't eat fish, so it probably is. I don't eat fish, and I don't fish. Yeah, you don't fish. I don't. Uh, I'm not a fisher person, so I don't. I eat and fish. I, I, my other question about fishing, I think I mentioned to you before. Why is it when you go on a boat or you go out fishing with somebody, they said, "Okay, we have to be on the boat and out by four o'clock in the morning." Where are the fish in the afternoon? Why can't we go out like eleven a.m. A normal time. Because the bugs are out in the early morning, and that's fish food. So they come out to eat the surface bugs. So the fish are jumping. And well, fish not, not, are the, jumping. Not, not the deep sea fish. They're not jumping. Well, they fish uh, in Bodega Bay, at least. You know, sometimes they look out. We have a 180-degree view of the ocean. Right. Nice. And uh, on nights, some nights there are 30 fishing boats out there. Uh, oh, so there are people night, that fish. They're, they're all night fishing, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's well, I would kind imagine of fishing the heat I would of the do. Day, the heat of the day is not as enjoyable as the cool of the day if you're out there. Basically, you're just standing there like this. I mean, there's uh, ask I the don't fisher. Know. It's just, it's just, I, I love fish. I don't fish because I can't stand the smell of fish. I don't like to touch the fish when they're I know, can't still alive. Fathom. I don't like to watch them die. I, I like can't fathom, and I can't fathom anybody continuing to listen to this podcast. <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, I would have turned this off ten minutes ago. No, no. When we hit, we had dead birds go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's the funny thing about podcasts: is we think, okay, that was silly. We're going to get more people saying, "Hey, I love the thing." I'm the same way with fish. I don't know where birds go. That's what people connect to. Okay. Trust me on this. All right. Right. And Bob has been terrific. And Bob has given Thank us you, great Bob. It's stories. A pleasure. Yes. Uh, you know, the SNL podcasts that I get involved with, Bob, they just love these stories and these behind the scenes <laughs> things. Um, so it's just a pleasure. For me, now, I would just want to make sure we mind, but we got all the, the dirt you're willing to tell us, right? On Saturday Night Live, was there other yeah, stuff? Yeah, we miss any dirt? Yeah. Oh, there's, a, there's a lot of dirt, but. Uh, Can you leave us with just one more piece of dirt? It was a, a nice memory. The Smothers Brothers, actually. Hmm. Uh, and I did not like Dickie at all, but Tommy actually became a real good friend. I haven't seen him in years, but he became a real good friend when we were on the show. I was really surprised at what a nice guy and what an intelligent guy he was. Hmm. I, I remember that show well, right. and, and I liked them both. You know, I didn't have that much to do with Dick's mothers, but hmm. yeah, Tommy's mothers was truly one of the nicest human beings who have ever walked through those right homes. and the other one the other one i i remember was george carlin yeah. who was the actually the first host on saturday night live but he did the show with us and uh, he was just a wonderful guy to be around and i happened to uh he actually did his last performance up here in santa rosa which is the next town over from me uh and it was uh it was an hbo special and i and i saw it i went to it live and that was his very last performance before What he died. about musical guests? They can traditionally be difficult. Um, we had Queen and, and Freddie Mercury had laryngitis. Really? Wow. Yeah. But he took a shot of cortisone or something and sang like Freddie Mercury. Okay, no problem? 
You know, I, I love them all. You know who was great? The Clash. You expect them to be tough, right? right? Mm. And really sarcastic or whatever, bitter. No, they were fun to drink with. Joe Strummer with his mohawk was mm. a delight. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, the musical guests, uh, it was always trippers. a lot of fun with the musical guests. On Thursday, you could go, when the rehearsal was, you'd go down and watch them rehearse. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, yeah. real yeah, musical Ringo idols that uh, got to meet on the show. And you know, Ringo started the show. Ringo started did the show. I'm sorry. Ringo Starr did the show. Uh, I don't know about you, but most of us were just so enamored by him because he was a Beatle that I, I don't even think we did the best show we could do. We were kind of like no, just starstruck. See wow. this? If you're, if you're listening to this, I'm holding up a coffee cup. You recognize the coffee cup? These are coffee cups from uh, the 14th floor. <laughs> There's plastic over the top of this. Those are Ringo's cigarette ashes from when he are sat in my office. Are you kidding me? Not kidding you. Sat in my office and he said, do you have any place to put me ashes for my cigarette? And I said, no, but you can put them in this, this coffee cup. And uh, here they are. Wow. I think I could sell this on eBay, because, but how do I prove that <laughs> those are the ashes from his cigarette? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he was a big deal. And we were all Beatle freaks, every single one of us. Well, Bob, thank you so much, and congratulations on this uh, new uh, endeavor. It's, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I thought the magazine was very, very funny when I read it. So it'll be curious to see how you pull it all together on the podcast. Well, congratulations to you guys, because uh, I did hear the first podcast with uh, Brad Hall. I thought it was yeah. really, really good. Oh, that's sweet. Thanks. It's a lot of fun to listen to, uh, and I think you guys are going to do really well with this. Oh, well, we hope, you know, we, we keep trying. Uh, but, but, Bob, it, it, let's not. We got to get a, a real wheel, though, don't you think? <laughs> you got to get a real wheel. And, folks, thank you for watching. You can always find us on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, DBNA TV, and YouTube. Thanks so much for listening and or watching. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>